So I want to show you three keys tonight, three keys to living a cross-centered life. Number one, as we go through this, I'll list them out to you now so you can hear them. The grace of the cross is our nourishment. Number two, the reproach of the cross is our calling. And number three, the worship of the cross is our offering. And as we go through these, I want you to see how those three keys that I just mentioned, how they show three different steps toward actually living this out. They show us exposition. In other words, they show us the truth. They say, this is the truth. This is what it means. And then it moves on to exhortation. It says, there needs to be a change in your life. This is supposed to make a difference in the way you live. And then it moves on to practical application. In other words, saying, here are some things that you should be doing. This is how you should be living this passage out. And I want you to see that as we go along. But notice number one, key number one to living a cross-centered life is the grace of the cross is our nourishment. And we'll see which one. It's this one. The grace of the cross is our nourishment. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. If I were to ask just about anybody on the street, uh, really it's safer to do it on the sidewalk, but if I were to be out asking people this question, how does God forgive? If I said, how does God do it? You'd probably get these kind of answers. People would say, I don't know, he just forgives, right? I'd, I'd never been told anything more than that. Or some people say, well, God is love, so he must forgive. Or some people would say, I try the best I can, and, and God knows that. He knows. Or they might say, I live a pretty good life, so there's not really that much he needs to forgive. And if there's a few things that I've done wrong, then you know he'll just let those go. Or some people say, well, I just hope that he'll be merciful to me. In the end, I just, I just hope he will. But it's at this very basic level that the gospel is abused, the gospel is misunderstood, it's added to, it's subtracted from, it's mixed, it's neglected, it's rejected. All of these answers have one thing in common. They all diminish the gospel. And they all diminish the gospel because they all fundamentally misunderstand how perfect justice and perfect grace can exist at the same time within the same God. They don't see how justice can be satisfied and grace can be extended at the exact same time. This is why all the religions of the world either have gods that are not completely perfect or that they have a lot of gods to cover all the different bases. Maybe there's a loving God, maybe there's a, a, a mean God, maybe there's a God of the sun, maybe there's a God of the moon, and all this collection, maybe then you have a complete picture. But all of these miss the point. How does God forgive? How does salvation work? How does he show us his grace? And the answer that this passage is going to give us is that the cross of Christ is our source of grace. God shows us his grace in the sacrifice of Christ. There's no other way. It shows us in the work of Christ. And I believe that's the main idea of verses 10 through 12. But I want you to see how the author gets to that point. Now, if you were to read verses 9 through 11, 9 through 12, and really studied them and say, really, you know, what do these mean? You would say, wow, these are not the easiest verses in the Bible. They're really difficult to place in their context, really difficult to fit and see where these fit in his argument. And I want you to work through this with me. I'd like to point out four things to see what these mean in this context. Number one, first, he had just warned us about false teaching. Look back at verse 9. He just warned us, last time we met together, 
about not being carried away by false teaching. Look at verse 9. It says, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. He says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So part of the false teaching that this author was correcting, part of the false teaching that was going around with these readers is that maybe they were fallen, attempted to fall into this, that they thought that grace came by observing certain dietary laws. Grace came by observing food laws, maybe laws about sacrificial foods. And they thought that their hearts could be strengthened by observing these laws. They were tempted to fall into this as he's telling them this truth. But he's trying to tell them observing rules does not produce grace. That's not how grace works. That's not how, that's not how God forgives us. Following dietary laws does not strengthen the inner man. External regulations can't help the soul. And the same thing for us. Following any kind of regulation or rule that you made for yourself or maybe some other person put on you, following that rule is not going to make you holy. It doesn't work that way. It's not how God's grace works. So verse 9 gives us the background to verse 10. And again, this is a difficult thing to see in this context. So that brings us to the second thing I want to point out in these verses. Second, members of the new covenant have a new and better altar. Say, okay, what is this all having to do with? Hopefully you'll see. We have a new and better altar in the new covenant. So it's like the author is saying, you want to talk about food? Okay. Let's talk about food. You say, what in the world is he talking about? Why are we talking about food? These believers, they might have been tempted or they might have been accused at this point of being at a disadvantage because they were now simply in the new covenant. They had no temple. They had no physical altar for sacrifices. They had no special place for worship. They had no gold trim or trappings. They didn't have any of those things. And they might have thought that they were at a disadvantage because of that. But this verse, this verse is saying, we do have an altar. We do have one. We have an altar. And what's, what's different about this altar? Why is this altar better? It says, because from this altar, those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So what's he talking about still? I still don't get what he's talking about. Okay, let's keep looking through it. These, this tabernacle that New Covenant believers have, the Levitical priests... People still under the old covenant had no right to the new covenant altar. He's turning now from the physical to the spiritual. Third thing I want to point out in this context is that the old covenant itself, was it ever really about food? Was the old covenant, did God design it to be about food? Or did God have something else in mind when he established the old covenant? He had... More in mind. It was never the intention of the Old Covenant to make people think that killing a bull or killing a lamb would ultimately clean up their conscience. The Old Covenant was never intended to think, make you think that eating sacrificial food would actually strengthen your heart. It was not designed to make you think that. That wasn't the conclusion that God wanted the people of Israel to draw from all these laws. It was not ultimately about the dietary laws. And there were some laws, or there were some sacrifices, I should say, that the priests were allowed to eat from. You've heard some of those references in the book of Leviticus, right? They would make sacrifices, maybe grain offerings, things like that. And then the, the priests who served the tabernacle, that was their due. 
They could eat from it, and that's how they got their meals. But, and here's the thing I want you to see, on the Day of Atonement, and whenever they made sin offerings, no one was to eat from those offerings. Do you see the difference now? Leviticus 16, 27. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat offering of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, listen to this, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Brought in to make atonement, but then brought out to be burned. Leviticus 6.30. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place, none of those shall be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. It goes in to make atonement, but then goes out to be burned. I say all that, I bring up all this background information to point you back to verse 11. Look at verse 11. This is what the author is doing. He's showing us that these old covenant, these old food, old covenant food regulations were to point us to the work of Christ. Look at verse 11. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. He's just telling us what we just read in Leviticus. He's just commenting on what we already know from Leviticus. So that's the fourth thing that brings me to the fourth thing I want to say. That is, God designed the old covenant sacrifices to point to the ultimate sacrifice. Now, is this a new thought in the book of Hebrews? Say, wow, we've been in Hebrews for over a year now, and you said this every single week, right? Is this new information? No, it's not. Only one person. There you go. Dave, anybody else? Is this new information? It's not new information, okay? So say, why are we bringing it up again? Okay, we're going to explain. The sacrifices of the old covenant pointed to Jesus' final sacrifice. Amen, we all agree. But, listen to this. He has saved one special point for the end of the letter. This is where it gets great. He saved one special point that he's not brought up yet. Another parallel, a new parallel that he has not shown us yet. And we see it in verse 12. It brought up the Levitical background in verse 11. Now, moving to verse 12, he shows us this amazing parallel between the Old Covenant food laws and sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ. And look at it. It says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. Where did he suffer? Outside the gate. The law pointed us to the purpose of the sacrifices. We've seen this all throughout the book of Hebrews. And the purpose was to sanctify the people. And did, did Jesus accomplish that? Yes. The law pointed us to the price of the sacrifices. And what was the price? Blood. Have we seen that in Hebrews yet? Yeah, we've seen that. It's exactly what Jesus paid. He paid the price with his own blood. And the law also points us to the place of the sacrifice. And where is that place? Outside the gate. And where did Jesus go? Outside the gate. John 19. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out. Are those words there by accident? He went out. He went outside of the city, bearing his own cross to the place, to the place called the place of a skull, to Golgotha. He went outside the city. Now think about ancient Israel. Think about what happened outside the gates. Was this a nice place? Was it nice to be outside the gates of the camp of Israel? What happened out there? Who was out there? That's where the lepers were. 
The lepers, once they were diagnosed, had to be sent outside the camp, and they lived alone outside the camp. That's where stoning and executions happened. Whenever someone was due to be stoned, they brought them outside, they laid their hands on them, and they stoned them to death outside the camp. That's where if you were affected by a bodily fluid, where were you going to go? Outside the camp. If you had to bury your excrement, it says in the book of Leviticus, where'd you go? Outside the camp. This is where you would take out the trash. It reminds me when everyone went to Honduras, they have this place where they just back their truck up and dump all of their trash down this big hill and it just burns 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Outside the camp. Outside the camp was an unclean, bloody place. But where did Jesus suffer? He went out. Now think about this. The book of Hebrews is always telling us, since, since the beginning of the letter, it's always telling us what we have. It says we have certain things in our possessions. It's always telling us this. Chapter 4, it says we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. It says we have this hope as an anchor of the soul. In chapter 8, we have such a high priest. He's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Chapter 10, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Also in verse 10, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, what does chapter 13 tell us? We have an altar. We have the cross of Christ. We have the perfect fulfillment of the law. We have the final, eternally effective sacrifice for sin. We have God's source of grace. The cross is how he shows us his grace. The cross is the only way to experience forgiveness with God. So the question you have to ask yourself is, are you settling for something less? Are you settling for foods? Are you settling for substitutes? Are you settling for physical stuff when God's offered you a spiritual, all-you-can-eat buffet in the cross of Christ? That's what this passage is pointing us back to. It's not for our hearts to be strengthened by foods, but by grace. You say, okay, wow, that was a lot of detailed teaching. I thought we were in the application section of Hebrews, and now all kinds of preaching again. Where's the application? I thought this was practical, everyday worship, right? Well, it still is, and I'm glad you asked that. With your, eye, with your mind's eye, I want you to think about this. Do you see Jesus carrying his cross outside the city gates? Think about this. Do you see him beaten and bloody? Do you see the crowd of people abusing him, yelling insults at him? Do you see him hanging on a cross on Golgotha? Do you see this in your mind's eye? So where's the application? It says in this passage, go to him. Go out there. Leave your comforts behind. Go out of the city. Go to where Christ is suffering. Go to the place of Jesus' sacrifice. The grace of the cross is our nourishment. Key number two, the reproach of the cross is our calling. It's our calling. Verse 13, look at that. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Say, so you want me, you want your application? That's it. 
bear his reproach. Go outside the camp. Isn't God's word always telling us things that are contrary to expectation? It's like you read through God's word and you say, I didn't expect him to say this, or, oh, this is great, but then he says something right after that, and it's like, I wasn't expecting that. This is something that's contrary to our expectations, isn't it? What do we want to do? What would we rather do? Think about what this verse is calling us to. Is it telling us to go out and bear Christ's fame? Go out and bear his popularity? Go out and bear his honor? What is this verse in particular saying? Saying, here's a robe. Here's a crown. Here's a throne for you to sit on. All the people in the streets are going to look at you with respect. All the people around you are going to start treating you the way you deserve, the right way. Is that what this passage is telling us? That's not what the verse says. It tells you to bear his reproach. The insults that he got, be insulted with the same. The disgrace that he got, be sharing the same disgrace. When Christ lived on earth, he did not get a royal welcome. Think about Isaiah 53. He was despised. He was forsaken. He was a man of sorrows. Grief was one of his closest friends. People hid their face from him. People spit in his face. People punched him with their fists. People slapped them with their hands. Shame. They stripped him in public. And they nailed him to a cross. And that puts a whole new meaning to shame, doesn't it? That's the shame. That's the reproach of the cross. You say, well, what's that got to do with us? All the shame, all the humiliation that Jesus got, we are called to put that same stuff on our shoulders. That's the call of this passage. So are you sure you're reading this verse right? Are you sure that you're interpreting this the right way? Yes, I'm sure. It says it right here. Let's go. Bearing his reproach. Now, what would this meant for the original readers? I believe in context, it would have meant something very literal, a very literal application for these original readers. And I've already shared this a couple times as we preach through Hebrews. But in the original context, they were being severely persecuted. And if you were to do a background study on how Romans did their persecution, how they did their mistreatment of the Christians, I believe the next thing on the list would have been exile just like the Apostle John, where he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Why, why was he exiled? Because of Jesus, because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, right? I believe that was the same destiny for these Christians, that the next thing on the list was for them to be sent out from everything they knew and to be exiled. So I believe this was a very literal application for these readers to actually go outside, be willing to bear the disgrace of being exiled, because of their identification with Christ, because of their commitment to Christ. So when this verse says, go out, it really does mean go out. Follow Christ to the bitterest end. Now, what does it mean for us in Tampa, Florida? What does it mean for us to go out of the gates and bear his reproach? I do believe, and I don't think I have to argue with any of you, that the level of persecution we experience here in America today is not even close to what they would have experienced back in the first century. I don't think we can, we've experienced anything in our culture today or by this point in our culture where we can actually call it serious persecution. I don't think we can. I think we're much closer to it than we were four years ago, but I think we'll all know when it actually happens, and I think it will happen. 
So the, the specific situation is different for us today, but how can we apply it right where we are today? That's the big question. Should we become astronauts, leave the world literally? That'd be nice, huh? But no, I don't think that's what it means. Does it mean we should go outside the Hillsborough County line? I don't think so, although Pasco's kind of nice. Should, does it mean we need to move to Taipei to make disciples? Maybe. Does it mean we need to move to the harshest part of the Middle East to evangelize, make disciples? Maybe. The point is, I don't know where God wants you. I don't know, and you would be nervous if I did tell you. But I do believe we can start and should start applying it right where we are today. And I think we need to do some basic things. I think we need to make a bold identification with Christ, a very bold identification with Christ. And I'm not saying be obnoxious about your faith. Nothing worse than an obnoxious Christian, but make a bold still identification with Christ. Any of you ever played Little League Baseball? You can go raise your hand. Now, what's the best part of Little League Baseball? It's not even hitting a home run. It's not even getting to run all the bases. You know what it is? It's the uniform at the beginning of the season. My second season of baseball, which happened to be the, uh, the season I retired, um, I played for the Red Sox, and that's whenever they gave us the official uh, uh, uniforms. It looked like the real pros. You had the stripe on the leg, you had the real logo on the front, and I just loved it. And I'm sure if my parents would have let me, I would have probably worn it everywhere I went. I was, the point I'm making is I was not ashamed whatsoever to be a Red Sox team member. Silly illustration, but that's how it should be with our relationship with Christ. We should be so caught up in our relationship with Christ, so much enjoying him, that it's just a natural part for us, a natural part of our lives to want to identify with Christ. We need to make a bold identification with Christ. And listen to this, even if no one's standing in your corner, even if there's no one else to do it with, still identify boldly with Christ. We need to also reach out to people that other people avoid. I think this is a good application from this. Is there such thing as an elite Christian? Elite Christian? Is there, is there such a thing? I think that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Christian means what? Little Christs. And to be like Christ means to humble ourselves to the very lowest point. There's no such thing as an elite Christian. We need to identify. We need to help. We need to go out to people who other people regularly Avoid. That's part of bearing his reproach. Identifying with people who are already outside the camp. We also need to become disenchanted with the world. Disenchanted with the world around us. Too often we expect a lot out of the world, don't we? We expect way too much out of the world. How do I know that? Because we readily get disappointed whenever the world doesn't deliver what we're expecting. We get very quickly disappointed. That means we're expecting too much out of the world, and too often we want to be like the world, too often we want to be approved by the world. But we need to remember that the world is not all it's cracked up to be, and we need to know that it's not going to be around. The world as we know it is not going to be around much longer. Look at verse 14 again. It says, For here we do not have a lasting city. We don't live in a lasting city. We don't live in a city that's going to be around much longer. So we need to have a view of Christ that is so high that we, we view his reproach as worth more than anything that the world has to offer. Think about that. We need to have such a high view of Christ 
that we view even his reproach, we view even his shame as something that is more valuable than what the world offers. We already saw this in the life of Moses. He left the riches of Egypt. He left all kinds of status. He left all kinds of opportunities. He left all that to go suffer with the people of God and to bear the reproach of Christ. And it says in back in chapter 11, don't turn there, but back in chapter 11, verse 26, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? It says because he was looking to the reward. We need to view his reproach as better than even the best thing that the world has to offer. And we need to remember that Jesus told us, Jesus told his disciples, that the world is going to hate us, that the world is not going to like us. He told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So don't be surprised if they don't like you. We need a definitive, clear cutting of ties with the world, expecting things out of the world, wanting to be like the world, Less of the flesh, less of the eyes, boastful pride of life. And we need to seek the city that God has prepared for us. Okay, so this gets to the point. This gets to the bottom of it. How can we bear his reproach? How can we do something that seems so impossible, so difficult? How can we do this? I believe verse 14 gives us the answer. It says, we don't have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's how we do it. Just like Moses could leave the riches of Egypt because he was looking to the reward, we can go out to Christ, we can bear his reproach because we are seeking the city which is to come. In other words, we go out to go in. We go out of this world system to go into the city that God has promised. The way we seek the permanent city is to live outside this temporary city. The path to the lasting city is the path toward Golgotha. Turn to first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5. I want to remind you of a, a passage, a great passage. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 1. It says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch, verse 3, as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This is how the Christian thinks. The point I'm making is that we need to be more like tent dwellers than homeowners. Whenever you go camping, do you bring everything with you? Well, you might at first have everything out. I, every time I get ready, I have all these things laid out on the bed. It's like I want to bring these three knives. I want to bring all these matches and this lighter and this other fire starter. And I want to bring this sleeping bag and this jacket because it's going to be really hot, cold out there. And I, bring, I have all these things I want to bring, but I say I can't carry all that, right? So I have to cut it way back down to the things I just need to survive, except for bacon. You have to have bacon. And you have to have coffee, so bring those with you. The point I'm making is that the nature of the trip just determines the necessities of the trip. This is how we have to start thinking as believers. Start thinking like tent dwellers and less like homeowners. 
We start thinking differently about what we actually need to survive in this dangerous world. The decisions of a hiker are radically different than the decisions of a resort goer. This is a drastic change in the way we think about this world that we live in, the things that we need, the things that we pursue, our desires. So you might have been bloodied and beaten up by the world, made fun of, taken advantage of, slanders, slandered, and that's where these original readers had been. Now God is telling us, he's telling them, put the cross on your shoulders. Start walking. Walk outside the city gate. Walk out there. Don't look back. Don't look back to the city and what it could offer you, what you think it could offer you, comfort, wealth, security, status. It says leave and go out to Christ. He identified with us so that we could have life. Now he's calling us to identify with him. That's the call of this passage. This is the exhortation of this passage. The reproach of the cross is our calling. And key number three, the worship of the cross is our offering. The worship of the cross is our offering. And when I say the worship of the cross, I don't mean we worship a wooden thing, right? We don't worship the cross. We don't worship a piece of wood, in other words. I mean the worship that Christ's work on the cross produces in us. The worship we do at the altar of the cross, at the new altar of the new covenant, the worship of new covenant believers. It says in verse 15, through him then, now here's very practical application, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. And then he identifies these things as sacrifices. He says, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now think about this. Think about everything we've learned in the book of Hebrews. There's a new covenant. There's a new altar. And there are new sacrifices that believers carry out every single day of their lives. These, these uh, sacrifices, they don't forgive sin. There's only one sacrifice that did that. That was the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We don't offer up Grain offerings and incense offerings or bull offerings or goat offerings or lambs. The cross has changed that. For the believer, there are offerings, there are sacrifices that make up our everyday worship. This is the third key to cross-centered living. These are things that we should do. These are things that we can do. These are things that we have the privilege of doing. These are things that we have the right to do. Things that we have the freedom to do in Christ. And this verse, this verse mentions, or verses 15 through 16 mentions three sacrifices that we make. Number one, sacrifice that we make is a sacrifice of praise. This is a new sacrifice of praise or sacrifice for new covenant believers. Look at verse 15. It says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You say, well, what's a sacrifice of praise? Hmm, that's a good question. Okay. Whenever you have a question like that, just look down and you'll probably get the answer. It says, that is, there's the explanation of what's the sacrifice of praise. It is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's what the sacrifice of praise is. These are words. This is worship. This is praise. This is acknowledging God for who he is. This is having a high view of God. It's not vain repetition. It's not lip service. Jesus said that people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not words by themselves. 
This is praise to God. Sometimes I think whenever we're singing here in church and we're not singing very loudly, I just want to say, just sing out, sing, sing more loudly, sing louder. I, just, I want to say that, but a lot of times I don't. You know why? Because this is the fruit of lips that give praise to God. Do you know why sometimes I don't do that? Because that would be like sticking an orange in your mouth to say, look, there's the fruit of your lips. And that's not a good way to sing out more loudly. This is fruit. This is a result of something that has happened already in your heart. If fruit is going to grow, it has to be attached to a branch. And that branch has to be attached to a tree. And that tree has to have roots that go down to the ground and are nourished through water and the soil. True praise is much deeper than the words we say. I love Psalm 45. I wrote it down and put it on my desk. It says, my heart overflows with a good theme. It says, I address my verses to the king. It says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I love that verse. There's an overflow of something that has been boiling in a good way on the inside for a long time. It can't do anything but come out. Now, does your heart always overflow with a good theme? I'm afraid it doesn't. Sometimes I fight for when I'm praying alone or when I'm praying here even in church publicly. Sometimes I fight for every single word. Sometimes when we're singing songs together, sometimes I fight every single verse. It's a struggle. It's like writer's block. Anyone have been to college and you're high school and you're having to write papers and you just look at that screen and you see the little thing going blink, blink, blink. <laughs> Nothing's happening. No thoughts are coming. But the issue is what has been growing inside of you? What have you been going to for nourishment? What have you been meditating on? What have you been feasting on? Have you been feasting on the gospel? Have you been going to the gospel, to the cross, to be nourished by grace rather than by other stuff. What's on the inside is what's going to come out. If you've been spending time at the cross, praise is what is naturally going to come out. And that's our answer. Again, the cross is the key. The worship of the cross is our offering. And with all your praise and with all your worship, don't forget about something else. There's one more thing this points us to. A package deal in verse 16. It says, and... While you're at it, do not neglect doing good and sharing. These new covenant sacrifices, they make a practical difference in our lives. They make a practical difference in our relationships with each other. They belong together. Just like if you've heard any music, maybe just think about a person playing the piano. They're playing beautiful chords in the left hand, and then something weird is going on in the right hand. And it just no matter how beautiful it is in the left hand, it's destroyed because what's going on in the right is all messed up. It has to be together, and that's how it needs to be in our relationship with God and with each other. There needs to be harmony. There needs to be a consistency, and that's what these verses are calling us to. So that brings us to number two, the sacrifice of doing good. The sacrifice of doing good. Now, this, this verse made me think of two funerals. Say, why, why two funerals? This verse made me think of two funerals the last couple of weeks. One is because I've been thinking about funerals. But a few years ago, Mike and I, we went to a funeral together, and it's no one y'all know. Um, but he wasn't the greatest guy. And it was like a dentist pulling teeth trying to get anyone in the group to say anything good about this guy. It's like he was, yeah, he was, and they just couldn't come up with any words. 
But contrast that with Todd's funeral. There was nothing but overflow of praise to God for what he had done through Todd. All the people's lives that he had touched. It was a stark contrast from this other funeral that I went to. So think about this. What will people say at your eulogy one day? What, what will they say? What would you want them to say? Would you like it if they said, yeah, he was a not a bad guy. Uh, he, I never saw him do any drugs. And uh, yeah, he just was an all-around not bad kind of guy. Would you like that to be your eulogy? And they couldn't think of anything else to say about you? That would be pretty sad. But the point I'm making is that the church should not uh, be known for what it avoids. This church is it's not a bad church. These people aren't, they're not, they're not bad people. No, we need to be known for doing good. Very practical things. We need to be known for helping. We need to be known for concrete ways, concrete acts to serve each other and those around us. And I believe this word is deliberately general. It just says doing good. If you find something good to do, if it's within your power to do it, then do it for those around you. Very general. Leaves it open to many, many applications. It's very easy to have good intentions at this point. Say, yes, I want to go out there and do I want to do good stuff now. It's very easy to have good intentions, but the command here is to act. It doesn't say just desire to do good things, but it says don't neglect doing good things. And then lastly, the sacrifice of sharing. Closely related to doing good here. It's the word koinonia, the word, Greek word that everyone knows in church. Koinonia here. It's usually translated what? For my Greek scholars, yes, fellowship. It's usually translated as fellowship. But here it's in the context of sharing. And you saw this word in the book of Acts in the same kind of context. And think about how the early church was. It says, this is how the early church was described. It says, there was not a needy person among them. You looked at the whole early church. It says, there was not a needy person among that whole group. What kind of generosity would they have had to actively display, actively engage in, for that to be said of them? This is continual generosity. This is continual sharing. This is always going about this sacrifice of sharing in the body of Christ. And that's exactly what God wants Grace Bible Church of Tampa to be like, known for its sharing. It costs time. It does cost money. It does cost energy. It does cost emotions. It's giving things away, giving food away, giving clothes away, although you probably don't want my clothes, but it's giving these practical things to each other so that there's not a needy one among us. This is radical generosity, isn't it? This is way above any of our standards, isn't it? This is what the New Testament calls us to. So closing up with verses 15 through 16, I want to point out three more things very briefly about these sacrifices that we just talked about. First, they're painful. They're painful. Sacrifice is a painful thing. Whenever you hear the word sacrifice, what should you think of? Ouch, right? Or more than ouch. That's the nature of sacrifice. When there is a sacrifice, something dies. In this case, it needs to be death to self. Doing good and sharing requires little daily deaths to self. It is painful. We need to recognize that. And we need to be okay with that. And actually, generosity, as we've learned in this church, is kind of difficult, isn't it? You try to give things away, and then 
it becomes a difficult situation. But anyways, they're painful. These sacrifices are painful. But it's okay. And look at next. It's, they're, per, they're perpetual. These sacrifices are perpetual. It says, let us continually do these things. Let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise, etc. Something that we're always doing. Something that we do on a daily basis as believers. Painful, perpetual. That doesn't sound good either, does it? Where is the incentive in this? Well, there's a third thing I want to say. There's some good news. These sacrifices are pleasing. They are pleasing. This should be the best news. That we can do things that are pleasing to God. Pleasing and acceptable. Just think about that for a minute. Think about, let that thought sink in for a second. Think about the possibility of you being pleasing to God. God never had a beginning. He has always existed. He always will exist. He is completely self-sufficient, which means he doesn't need anything that we do. He created us. He doesn't need us. He is not served by human hands, the Bible tells us. Can we increase God's value? No. He is intrinsically of infinite value in and of himself. Now think about this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. No evil dwells in God. He hates all who do iniquity, the psalmist tells us. Now, is there anyone in here who has not pursued the things of the world? Is there anyone in here who has not violated God's holiness? Is there anyone in here who has not run from God? Is there anyone in here who has not chosen filthy things over God? How in the world could we do a single act that could be described as pleasing to God? Acceptable to God. This kind of instrument. How could anything I do be acceptable to God? The passage tells us. Two words. Through Him. Through Him. Through Him we are offering up these sacrifices. We are offering these up through Christ and because we are united with Christ, because we are one with Him, we can do things that are pleasing to God. And that should be the best news that we hear all week. Tomorrow, you can do something that is pleasing to God. You can share with somebody and that can be pleasing to God. You can do good to somebody and that can be pleasing to God. You can worship Him tomorrow and that can be pleasing to Him. We don't have to scale the wall at night. We don't have to smuggle goods into the wall. We don't have to hide before him. We can walk right through the gates. We can smile at the guards. We can nod at the knights. We can walk right past the, king, the king's advisors. We can walk right into the throne room and give him all the praise and tell him all the requests that we have. And it can be acceptable. It can be pleasing because we are one with Christ. And this is a key to cross-centered living. The grace of the cross is our nourishment. The reproach of the cross is our calling. And the worship of the cross is our offering. We become members of the new covenant because of the cross. The cross changes the way we look at the world. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we make decisions. It changes our values. It changes our priorities. It gives us a realistic perspective on this world and where this culture is actually going to end up. It's how it's going to get worse and worse. 
It teaches us that we should not expect anything out of this world. It teaches us that we just live here in a temporary tent that one day is going to be rebuilt into a glorious city where Christ will reign forever and ever. Where else in the world can you find news like this? But right here on the pages of Scripture. Nowhere else. So as we close and we pray, ask yourself, pray to the Lord these questions. Do I really see the reproach of Christ as something valuable? Do I really believe that? Do I really think that in my heart? Am I really willing to put that kind of shame on my shoulders? Ask yourself, have I been neglecting doing good and sharing? Ask yourself, have I been seeking grace through some other means than the cross of Christ? Have I been seeking spiritual nourishment anywhere else but in the gospel of Christ and his work for us? Those are the kinds of prayers that God loves to answer, so pray to him, examine your hearts, and see him work. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we do love your word. We do love how it shows us your character, how it shows us the work that you've done for us, how it shows us how undeserving we are. It brings us to the end of ourselves, but Lord, it lifts us up because it shows us that we can be acceptable to you. We can be pleasing to you. We can truly worship you because of what Christ has done in our place. Lord, I do pray that we put all of our faith, all of our trust in him. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who has not done that, any of the young people, Lord, who do not understand this yet. I do pray, Lord, that they would continue to understand your work for us, Lord, that they would, you would work in their hearts. Lord, you bring us closer to yourself. We do ask this in all, in Christ's name.